Our keynote speaker this morning, it's a, it's a privilege to have him here, Connor Neal. He's a sought-after keynote speaker on leadership. We get to have him right here this Saturday morning. I'm sure he could be doing millions of other things, but he's accepted to come here to raise our bar on leadership. Connor is, um, he said he teaches leadership at, well, leadership communications to be more precise, at the ACE Business School. He's also a visiting professor at uh, the University College of Dublin, the University of Montevideo, and he's also permanent, permanent faculty at, at the Entrepreneurs' Organizations Global Leadership Academy. He's not only a teacher, but he's also an entrepreneur himself. He's founded five companies, one of which built the third largest fleet of private jets. Today, Connor is here to give his keynote speech on very fascinating topic, I must say. I'm very, very curious to see. Teaching the leaders of 2050, developing mass cooperation networks. Let's look into the future, Connor. Welcome on stage. So, 15th of December 2047. On the 15th of December 2047, I will be the age my father is today. And I was thinking, what is the world of 2047, of 2050, going to look like? And so what I want, I think in teaching leadership, there are only two timescales that really matter. 30 years in the future and this week. Five-year plans are stupid. The world changes too fast and they're not far enough in the future to be a dream. 30 years is a timescale where you can dream, where you can imagine things that you don't know how they're going to achieve. Last year, I coached a TED speaker and the last words of his talk was, if you have a dream and you know every step and every task you need to do to achieve that dream, it's not a dream, it's a list of tasks. <laughs> and what I want to do this morning on a Saturday morning, and in fact, Josephine, the other option I had was feeding papilla to my two-year-old daughter. <laughs> so actually it's quite a better exchange here instead of there trying to be an aeroplane and entertain. You are a much easier audience than a two-year-old daughter trying to get food into the mouth when plastiline only gets you about three spoonfuls into the mouth. But today is also a privilege for me because I have one of the most important people in my life in the audience. And I'm nervous this morning, not because Toastmasters spend their life evaluating every gesture, every movement, every word, and I'm hypersensitive that there's pens writing. <laughs> But here in the front of the audience, my daughter Alexandra has come to join us this morning. So, Alexandra. And when I was asked to come and stand here on the stage in front of Toastmasters, I thought this is a wonderful opportunity because in June, I get to stand up in front of a stage, in front of a thousand school headmasters in a conference that is about girls' education. 
So I'll have a thousand headmasters and teachers and people that are involved in making the lives of five to 15 year olds, designing the, the experience in school so that these leaders, because you know, my daughter will be my age in 2047. So not only am I imagining what I'll be like when I'm my father's age, I'm trying to imagine what it will be like for Alexandra to be sitting here on this stage or in this room in 2047. You know, what will the world look like? And in order to understand the moment in time we are today, if you took the entire of history of humanity, human beings, much as we are today, have been around for 100,000 years. So if you took those 100,000 years, if you made the 100,000 years of humanity into a book, so if imagine this book was the book of humanity. Every page in this book is 200 years. So page one, the state of humanity, page one, hungry, weak, living in the forests. If there was some alien being that picked up the book, the book of humanity, a 500 page book that explains the entire history of humanity up till today, and he started reading. Pages 1 to 460, the story of humanity, cold, hungry, and weak. Not a magnificent, magnificent creature. Living in the forest, much like monkeys getting along in little tribes. Page 461, agriculture. And for the first time, humans start to live in cities. And for the first time, humans have some time to do something other than forage for food, fight, and just survive. So pages of humanity, one to 461 was survival. 461 was the first page that humanity starts to have time to think. 491, Jesus Christ, religions, cities, written language is only 485. So imagine there was an alien being got a hold of this book and he starts reading it and he's reading the book of humanity. And his wife is preparing dinner, and he's sitting there reading the book of humanity. And after two hours, she says, it's time for dinner. He's read to page 460. He comes in, and she says, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading the book of humanity. And she says, are they an inter you know, interesting? He says, no, they're not gonna do anything. <laughs> They basically wake in the morning, are hungry, find food, and basically focus on that till they die. It's only when you get to page 498, when life as we know it starts to arise. Transport starts to be not on foot, but there's machines. It's page 500, where all of the things, you're sitting on a chair made of plastic, made of metal. These things, these objects only exist on page 499 and 500. The year 2047 isn't even the end of the next page. Page 501, the end of page 501 is the year 2200. Now, what's going to be in the next 500 pages of this book? What's going to be of human beings? And I think one huge part of it is how technology is going to change our lives. Well, so you think we live in the West. And if you take the last 30 years, the last 30 years of human history, if you take every percentile of wealth 
in the world. The, the poorest 5%, the next 5%, the next 5%, and the richest 5%. Over the last 30 years, every one of those groups except one has had a massive increase in their wealth. The poorest 5% on the planet are 77% better off today than they were 30 years ago. The richest 5% on the planet are 67% better off today than they were 30 years ago. Everyone below the 50th percentile is a huge degree better off today than they were 30 years ago. But there's one group that is no different today. They haven't shrunk, but their capacity to buy, their GDP per capita has not changed in 30 years, which is the Western middle classes, which is what I'm looking at here. <laughs> the voters for Trump in America are part of the Western middle classes. It's not that they've got worse, but every single other category of humanity has got better, has seen their power of, of purchasing grow. And in the end, it's not how much money that you have that really matters. It's whether you're richer than your neighbor, whether your car is a little bit newer than your neighbor. These are the things that cause existential crisis for human beings. So what I want to be talking about is we sit in the percentile that over the last 30 years has made no significant changes to our quality of life. And in many cases, if you look and listen, certainly to my Catalan friends, the quality of their parents' life, age 45, they had a house in Costa Brava, they had a house in the ski area. My friends realized they don't have quite as good a life as their parents did when they were young. And I think a huge part of this comes down to school. And for me, when I was 14 years old, I met the teacher that had the greatest impact on my life. So 14 years old, I left Ireland from a school of 300 people, and I moved to Chicago. And I went into a school as seen on television. Have you seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? That was my school in Chicago. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was filmed in my neighborhood and in my school. Uh, so this was a 4,000 students in one city block, one manzana was my school. And I started in that school and I met the teacher that had the greatest impact on my life, Mr. Matz. And Mr. Matz began class by holding up the biology textbook and he said, how much is this book worth? And the response from the class was much like here now. <laughs> the book is worth $32 in the school library. He said, at the end of this year, if you've learned everything in this book and have passed every exam, do you know how much more you're worth? $32. He said, that's not what this course is about. If during this year you learn to be curious, you learn to look at the systems and see how they interact, you see a tree and all the life it supports around it, and you become curious and interested in people and nature and things and how all things interact, at the end of this year, you're not worth $32 more. You're worth infinitely more. Mr. Matz, about three weeks into class, he gave us a homework. And computers were just starting to arrive. My dad had a work computer that arrived at home. And for this homework, I took my dad's computer and I used it to plot a graph. And I printed it out and I brought it in. And 
Mr. Matz received 30 scribbled handwritten homeworks and someone had printed on you know, the dot matrix with the holes down the side that you had to rip off. And when he handed back my homework, I remember looking up at the top of the homework, on the top of the page, he'd written 11 out of 10. And to a 14-year-old schoolboy from Ireland, this doesn't work. If there's 10 points on a test, there's 10 points in the system. And I knew a bit about computers, and I knew our school system was computerized in the US. This grade had to go into a central computer system. And my brain, I was thinking, this, this isn't going to work. <laughs> but I wasn't used to approaching a teacher. It took me all that week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And on Friday, I took this homework, and I went up to see Mr. Matz, because I had to tell him the mistake that he had made. So I went up to see on Friday Mr. Matz, and I pointed out 11 out of 10. I said, it's out of 10. There is no 11. And Mr. Matz looked at me, and he said, 10 was for the best homework that I could have imagined. You went beyond what I could have imagined. You deserve 11. And this messed up my head. <laughs> because up till that point, I had figured out school. You decide what grade you want to get, and then you decide how much work you're willing to do to predictably produce that grade. My target grade was about 61%, a B. Because with 61%, you had enough of a buffer that if it, it all went wrong, you were still there. But the worst thing you could possibly do, in my mind, was to get 69%, which meant it was 8% far too much work, and you didn't get enough to actually get the A. So my whole system of thinking <laughs> As a kid, I think my brain had spent far more time working out the system of school than throwing myself into the learning, the process, the people. So this 11 out of 10 just messed with the whole system. If there's a grade beyond an A, maybe there's a grade beyond an A in everything. Maybe there's a grade beyond an A in everything my parents ask of me. Maybe there's always something further I can go. And this conference about raise the bar. You know, what are the conditions under which you raise the bar? Because there's lots of conditions under which it's easy to drop the bar. It's lots of conditions under which it's easy for me to give an excuse where I drop my standards. And I think the hardest thing that we need to learn in life is how to keep our, high, our standards high no matter what comes back from the world. When you're working on a team and someone isn't showing up on time, someone isn't doing the work, it is so easy to let your standards drop down because you can justify that if they're not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. But for me, that, begin, that beginning of standards beyond an A, the grades don't matter. It's an exploration of where I can get to. And to me, leadership, leadership, my best understanding of leadership comes from an 11-year-old boy in the United States. There's a good friend of mine who in the US is a guru on leadership, Bill Treasurer. I met him in my second global training course at Accenture. When I was a young consultant, we go to Chicago to go to the consultant training school, and I met Bill Treasurer. And today, Bill Treasurer has published five books. We've met him and his family. They've come and stayed with us here in, in Barcelona. But Bill 
spending, spent 20 years of his life coaching leaders, coaching the leader of Accenture, coaching the leader of a number of big uh, companies in the US. And when his son Ian was 11, he was chosen class leader. So big moment, he was chosen by the class as the class leader, age 11. And Bill's wife says to Bill, Bill, guess what? Ian has been chosen as class leader. And Bill sits in his room thinking, finally, a chance to impress my son. Finally, a chance to show the 20 years of learning, of lessons, of how to be class leader. And he's done some coaching, so he knows it's important to ask <laughs> questions rather than begin straight in with preaching. So he's ready with his questions. But in reality, he's ready to unload on his son 20 years of his <laughs> wisdom and preaching. So Ian comes home from school that day, and Bill is quite excited getting ready. He doesn't want to look too excited, so he takes his time. But <laughs> Ian comes in and from school, puts his bag down, and Bill is sort of waiting and says, Ian class leader. I don't know if it's a high five or a fist pump, but one of those uh, American. Uh, so Ian, class leader. What does class leader do? And Ian looks at his dad and he says, oh, it's great, dad. Uh, I get to open doors for everybody. <laughs> and the role of the class leader was they're the first to school and they open the door for everyone in the morning. That's what Ian, class leader, that's what his role was. Open the door. And Bill, <laughs> <laughs> what he did with this, he wrote a book. He threw away everything that he learned before and he thought, this is it. Leaders open doors for people. Leaders open doors and I think Emilia talked about open doors of discomfort where you have a friend and you see that they can make a step, but they've been waiting and they need that friendly push, that they're gonna look at you with a look of But they know that that friendly push is that you're opening a door for them. That door is there, and there, but they need someone to help them open the door. Another is a door of opportunity. Sometimes there's a job that you know of and offering it. Sometimes there's a project that you know of and giving someone else the chance to do it. Sometimes there's a task that you'd like to do yourself, but you know that for someone else it would give them the chance to grow and get some exposure. So the second type of doors is doors of opportunity, of giving a project to someone, of thinking of an idea. In running a Toastmasters conference, there's a lot of opportunities to step up and contribute and give. And the third is doors of introduction, introducing people of connecting people. And I think in the world today, some of the most important doors we can open is just connecting two people. When we know, meet someone and we feel that there's a connection with another thing, one of the greatest things we can do is connecting two others and giving them both our trust. And 20 years of leadership guru, Bill threw away all of that material. And his book was Leaders Open Doors. And his best-selling book of all the books he's written is called <laughs> Leaders Open Doors. And it's a story about an 11-year-old who said, leadership is opening doors. So I don't know if I was supposed to come here and paint the leadership as, you know, it's Donald Trump, you get to fly on a private jet, you get golf courses. 
But I think the, the real leadership we need in society is the, is the leadership of just making each place slightly better because you're there. And for me, I'm a teacher today, and I've spent 16 years teaching at ESE. The first five years, there was a saying in my head that every morning and every evening would resonate. And it was words that my father said to me when I was young. My father said to me, those that can, do. Those that can't, teach. <laughs> my first five years as a teacher in ESA, if you asked me, Connor, who are you? What do you do? My answer was, I'm an entrepreneur, I have a couple of business, and I teach. <laughs> but it was at the end, and as a, just an add-on. It wasn't something I would say proudly, because I agreed with my father. My experience of teachers, all the other teachers I had in school were not Mr. Matz. Mr. Matz was truly unique in my experience of being in school. My daughter's experience of school and my experience of school haven't changed much in these change of 30 years. On a Sunday night, it's rare that my daughter says to me, I'm so excited, tomorrow we have school. <laughs> I was exactly the same 30 years ago. Every Sunday night, I was not saying, I'm so excited, tomorrow I get to spend time with people who want to learn and grow. You have to come to something like Toastmasters, because everyone in this room has chosen to be here. When I was in school, there was three things that most every teacher wanted to plug into us students. Sit still, stay quiet, do what you're told. What I see in front of me looks like people who are sitting still, staying quiet. I don't know if you're doing what you're told, but what I would like to do is break that rule because what I want to do is break these three rules for the rest of eternity because the history book of humanity, if we're going to look at the next 500 years, the way to die out and live a miserable life is sit still, be quiet, and do what you're told. Because there's something that exists today in society that is wonderful. It's sitting still, being quiet, and doing what it's told. If you look at the loss of employment in Western middle classes, it's not globalization. The jobs have not moved to China. You know, if a t-shirt manufacturer in China employs 2,000 people and Donald Trump <laughs> succeeds in moving that company's production facilities back to New Jersey, how many people are going to work in that production in New Jersey? 2,000 making t-shirts. The I Love New York t-shirt, 2,000 people working in China. If they move that production back to New Jersey, how many people are going to be in that factory? 15, 8. It can be a lot of machines, because machines are really good at three things. Sitting still, they're really good at being quiet, you know, especially with the new fan technology, and they're very, very, very good at doing exactly what they're told. Often they get into problems because they do so exactly what they're told. Western middle classes, this five percentile of the wealth scale in which we belong, this group that over the last 30 years hasn't got any worse, but we haven't got any better. I think the roots of this problem is that we teach every child as they learn, as they learn to be part of society, to sit still, to be quiet, and to do what you're told. What I would like to do just now is for you to not sit still, not be quiet, not do what you're told. In order to do that, what I want you to do is hug three people 
touch three walls and get back to your seat as quickly as possible. Go. <laughs> Exacto. Hey. Ah, hey, hola, hola. Bien, bien. Choca. So we're doing well on so at fifteen. There are, I guess, some limits to how much I want you to not sit still, not do what you're told. <laughs> but what fascinates me, there was a, I was in Aula 1 of this building last week, and the speaker uh, was from Iceland. And she was a kindergarten teacher 30 years ago. Today, she owns a business, and 8% of all Icelandic kids go to her schools. And she came to talk about educating children. And one of the things that struck with me is her, the title of her talk was Educating Emotionally Intelligent Boys and Courageous Girls. And she said, Boys out of the box come courageous, and girls out of the box come emotionally intelligent. Now, it's a gross oversimplification, but what we need to develop is emotional intelligence in boys and courage in girls. And one of the things that struck with me, she said, when you teach a group of two-year-olds, she can do anything. By the time kids get to four-year-olds, if she was to sit down and, and do this on the stage, the boys think it's fantastic. The girls enter panic. <laughs> because it's not what a teacher does. And I think my particular, I have two daughters, an 11-year-old and a two-year-old. And my question over this last year is I've been thinking about Speaking about what girls' education needs, I've been trying to think, well, one, what is education in general and what are the specific needs of girls? And, and the second major concern I have is, what is an Irish male doing on stage in front of all of these people talking about girls' education? <laughs> the good thing is I can begin every conversation with them with that statement and then ask whatever I want. But I think this element that courage Leadership requires courage. Leadership requires the courage to ask a question when no one, ask will ask, no one else will ask the question. Leadership requires the courage to see that a group is bored and something needs to change. And 
what we do in school is kill courage because I think by the time boys are 18 and girls are 18, they've learned that when you put your hand up, you're going to get hurt. And what I try and do in my teaching, so as I said, my first four or five years of teaching in ESA Business School, the question in my head is, do I look like a good ESA professor? I want to impress people with me looking like a good ESA professor. Some student comes with a question, my thought is, how would a good ESA professor answer this question? <laughs> and it was a constant thing of, I wasn't being me. I was playing the role of what I believe to be a good ESA professor. What I've learned is when you act as something else, the moment you put a uniform on, you put a suit or a jacket or something and you stop being you and you become acting in the role that you think of this person, all ethics falls out of the system. The greatest evil is not done by someone acting as themselves. The greatest evil, Hannah Arendt, who studied the Nazi prison camps, the Nazi system, when she went, she went and, and was at the trial of, I don't remember the name of the guy that was found in Argentina, brought in the 1960s to Israel. That one. So, <laughs> and uh, she went to study this trial because she wanted to understand the roots of evil. And what she found was a guy in a suit who looked like your grandfather. And his story was, I was following orders. I did what I was told. They asked me to do this. I did it efficiently. And I think the great danger in society is when you start acting the way you think others want you to be. The purpose of my class at ESA on leadership is to take off the suit and have you live as yourself, answer questions as yourself, speak as yourself. Uh, Olivia, Olivia Schofield, who's a Toastmaster that I've got to met, meet over the, the, the last few years, one of the things she says is a, an actor is an expert in being someone else. A speaker is an expert in being themselves. And I hope what you're learning to be here at Toastmasters is not learning to act like a good speaker. I think there's a beginning period in the first year as you get the use of it where you do need to put on a suit of someone else and try out gestures and sometimes it's quite awkward. But it's only by testing out what's awkward that you start to find what really connects with others. And this saying that an actor learns to be someone else, but a speaker, it's a journey of learning to be yourself, of learning to be paying attention when fear or desire or hunger to try and be someone else starts to take over your system. And you stop being just you, and you act out of fear or out of want. Remember, there was a FBI lie detector trainer. <laughs> So I was at a conference in, in Turkey, in Istanbul, and this woman trains all the FBI agents on how to detect lies. So you can imagine there's a thousand entrepreneurs in the audience thinking, oh, how to detect lies in an interview. And she started by saying, one, there's no trick. So you know, scratching the nose and looking up to the right does not mean absolutely guaranteed that they're lying. It may be there's an itchy nose, it may be that they're stressed, it may be that they're uncomfortable. <coughs> but th there are a couple of things that 
if, if you have video footage of someone before and video footage of someone after, you can start to see that there's something going on. But what she, the, the thing that she said that stuck most with me is for a lie to happen, you need two people. One who wants to tell it and one who wants it to be true. Now for a lie to happen, there needs to be someone who wants to tell it, but in you there needs to be something that isn't true, but you would give everything for that to be true. And I think that the search <clears throat> to be a leader is to find these things within ourselves. Find the things that you would desperately love to be true, but if you look right now, it's not true. Because the way you will be cheated by a con man, the way someone who is good at this stuff will find a way to cheat you. <clears throat> the two people who've cheated me most in the last 20 years of my life both saw <clears throat> the thing that I wanted most to be true and used that as the path to get me to do things that I wouldn't have done acting as my normal self. Both of them, the words I most wanted to hear all of my life from my father, I'm proud of you. Most of my life I've thought, you know, if only my father would look at me and just say those words. There's been times where I think maybe I could just give him the script, set it up <laughs> as a little theater just so I can experience what it would feel like for him to look at me, I don't mind if he's just reading from a script. So, Connor, you, 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 I'm proud of you. I've never heard those words from my father. The two people who cheated me out of money and out of things the most, at many times in our relationship, put the hand on the shoulder, looked me in the eyes and said, your father must be so proud of you. <laughs> I was dribbling with... <laughs> What I've realized is, it is actually true, but he's never going to say it in the words. Because my father grew up at a time when words are not important. And I think having taught leadership communications for 16 years, a lot of people want to know what to say. I think if you pay attention to words, you can lose sight of what's really important. My father has never said in words, I'm proud of you. But when I fly into Dublin Airport at six in the morning, he'll often come and pick me up. We'll sit in silence the whole M50 hour long back. But he came. My mom and my father, I spent probably 33 years of my life wishing they would say a certain set of words and the last few years starting to pay attention, not to the surface features, but how they lived their lives. And how they live their lives demonstrates that they're proud of me, demonstrates that they do love me, demonstrates that they would give. But they, they have a strength in that they can leave me in discomfort far longer than I have the capacity to leave my daughters in discomfort. And that's probably a challenge that, that we need. So what I want to finish with is when I was 14. I came back from Chicago having gone to this new school, met Mr. Matz. And that Christmas, I was sat on the floor between my two grandfathers. And my father's father, Grandpa Henry, looked at me and he said, Connor, success is earning more than your father. 
<laughs> and so age 14, you look up and you see a gray hair saying to you something like this. So it, it just went into the box of truths in my head. Success, earning more than your father. And when I was 21, I started work. I began work, my first proper job. I'd worked in Burger King. I'd worked in the typical summer student jobs. But my first proper job, I was 21 years old, and I walked into the London offices of Accenture to begin my career as a consultant. My father, at the time, was global president worldwide of Arthur Anderson and Accenture. So age 21, I go in, and for the first time, I realize how much my father earns. <laughs> I never had the opportunity to go and speak to my grandfather about whether the inflation is a real or nominal comparative. But I saw this is going to be a big gap. And I guarantee the reason my father earned so much is because my grandfather put this into him. He needed this because my grandfather had put this into him. My father put into me another set of words, those that can do, those that can't teach. And he probably just said it in a flippant way, just throwing it out. It didn't even mean something, but it really stuck with me. And I think when I was thinking about coming to Toastmasters here this morning, I think one, success has nothing to do with an individual achieving a certain amount in a bank account. To me, age 29, success for me changed from how much I earned. I was going to uh, have 30 million in a bank account from selling companies. So the reason I was setting up companies is I wanted to sell a company for 100 million. And in 2008, I was on track for selling a company for 100 million. And September 2008, Lehman Brothers. I had a fleet of 16 private jets operating out of Spain, Madrid, Italy, France. And if you think real estate suffered, September 2008, our revenues went from half a million a month to zero. And it was zero September, zero October, zero November. And by February, we had to lay off all of the employees that I'd spent seven years recruiting, training, building the company. And February 2009, my ex-wife said, I can't do this anymore. I, you need to leave. So February 2009, I was living in the office where I had laid off all the people with a mattress under my desk. And in February 2009, it wasn't the bankruptcy of the business that most weighed upon me. It was lying there and knowing that Alexandra was asleep under a different roof. So February 2009, the thought, there's no worse place to get to than this. I cannot even provide a family for my daughter. And most of 2009, I was just wallowing in the misery of, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I was on track for that big house in Pedralves, the, all the cars I wanted. But towards the end of 2009, there was, I'd got rid of the court cases, got rid of everything. There was no reason to get out of bed. And I didn't get out of bed. I stayed in bed. I felt there was nothing more for me to do. And after three, four days just lying in bed, I remember there was something came clear to me. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, 
is we are here for a reason. You are here this morning, this Saturday, in this room, in, in Kaisha Forum, for something. If you pay attention, there's something here for you. Hope, action changes the future. Thinking about calling my dad changes nothing. Picking up the phone, dialing the digits changes the future. There's always an action that changes our path. And love, love is I will never have myself at the center of a question. What's in it for me? What am I getting from this event? What are they giving me in this event? I never ask myself a question that has me at the center. Love is that there's always another person at the center of your question. What does my daughter need from me now? What does this group here this morning on a Saturday need from me? If all your questions have other people, what are your friends at Toastmasters? What are your club members that are here today? What do they need from you? I think we heard from Emilia, sometimes it's a push. Sometimes it's a friendly word. Sometimes it's encouragement. Sometimes it's just to be there and listen. But if you always start with what others need from you, I think then leadership becomes easy. What I want to leave you with, leadership is about making things better when you're around in the small ways. And success in life has nothing to do with earning more than your father. <laughs> or any other person, a brother, a wife, anyone. Success in life has nothing to do with a number in a bank account at a certain age. The definition I have of success today, and what I wish for all of you, success is to have stories your grandkids want to hear. And what I hope for you is in the 15th of December, 2047, when I celebrate reaching the age my father is today, each of you look around and see little faces looking up with the same energy and intensity and curiosity that I see in this room here today, saying, tell me more. And if that is what we achieve, then this has been a fine 40 minutes this morning, this Saturday. Thank you very much.